Father, as we come to your word and we come to the book of Hebrews, uh, it's just so rich in, in its description of just who you are in Jesus Christ. Lord, there's so many faulty views of who you are. There's so many skewed Christologies. And, and Lord, as we look at this chapter and the coming chapters, Lord, we, we're, we're just given this vision of, of you on your throne in glory. And Lord, uh, j- just how awesome and mighty you are beyond description, beyond words. And I think the author of Hebrews come as close as you can in words in describing you, Lord. And so I just ask today that, that you open our hearts with a fresh vision of who you are in Jesus Christ, Lord, that, that uh, we can see you in your glory, that we can see you on your throne. Because, Lord, the, the purpose of this book and the purpose of our life and the purpose of eternity, Lord, is for us to be able to enter into your presence, into the holiest of all. And Lord, that's what the author's trying to open the doors for us in this book. And, and uh, that's where we want to be, even now, before, before uh, you return and you rule and reign on this earth. We can, we can be there now, Lord. And so, so we ask for this vision of, to be made alive in our hearts and our eyes to be open. As we look at this text, uh, we ask that you teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Way back in 1977, Maria Rubio was cooking breakfast for her husband one morning, and she was cooking uh, breakfast burritos. And as she was cooking these burritos and she was cooking the tortillas, she looked down at one of the tortillas, and it looked to her like the burn marks on the, on the tortilla made by the, uh, by the stove had given her the face of Jesus right there on those tortillas. And she showed it to her husband, and her husband said, wow, that is Jesus. And so they took the tortilla to the priest, and the priest said, yeah, that's Jesus. So, so they, the priest said, you got to make a shrine. And, and this happened in Lake Arthur, New Mexico. So she built this shrine in Lake Arthur, New Mexico, called the Shrine of Jesus the Tortilla. Now, this is not a joke. Within a week, 8,000 people had come to see the shrine. And everybody that saw the shrine and saw the tortilla said that the face on the tortilla looked exactly like Jesus. Now, how they know that, I don't know. But they said it looked exactly like Jesus, except one cynical New York reporter, he said it looked more like uh, heavyweight champion Leon Spinks. But by 1979, over 35,000 people had visited the shrine of Jesus the Tortilla. And they had laid flowers at the shrine, and they had uh, brought pictures of their sick loved ones to the shrine, and there were even reports that people were healed at the shrine. And so it became a very popular place. And, And Maria said... The tortilla changed her life. That she wasn't the same person after the experience with a tortilla. That she found joy and she found peace. And that uh, her and her husband became closer than they ever were. 
uh, it just really revived their marriage. So if you're struggling in your marriage, you might want to go to Lake Arthur and try to find the, the, the uh, shrine of the Jesus the Tortilla. I'm teasing, don't do that. You know, we sort of laugh at that, but since that time, supposedly Jesus has appeared in a pizza, on a bill, a pizza Hut billboard, uh, a plate of spaghetti, a bowling alley chimney, a car bumper, and a dinner placemat, and even on a dead priest's toe. <laughs> now, you know, I don't know whether to laugh or to cry when I hear stories like that. And I think that's the way Paul felt about where the Jews were heading in his day, the so-called Jewish Christians, because they were still worshiping the prophets. They still thought Moses was the greatest man who ever lived. They worshiped angels, and they were observing the feast. They had gone back to observing the feast and the rituals in the temple because they thought that would prove their standing with God. And worse of all, they were going back to the Jewish sacrificial system and making sacrifices in order to pay for their sins, as if Jesus hadn't done enough, as if the blood of bulls and goats could do what Jesus couldn't do. And so I believe he was really, when he wrote this book, he's, he's not rebuking them like he, like he rebuked the Galatians, uh, he's trying to give them a Christology to try to change that. Because that was their problem. They had a very weak Christology. They, they had no idea just who Christ really is. They had no idea what he had really done for them. I mean, if you worship angels, if, if, if you, you think more highly of the prophets than Jesus, if, if you lift up Moses more than... Christ, if you worship the saints, if you believe Mary is the co-redeemer, uh, if you live under the law, uh, if, if you see Jesus in a tortilla, I tell you, you've got a very bad Christology, a demented Christology. You don't really understand who Christ is. I mean, that's why the author writes this book to show us that Christ is infinitely better than the prophets, that he is infinitely better than the angels, that he's better than tortillas, for sure. He wants to take us, and here's his purpose, he wants to take us from serving in the outer courts and in the holy place, and he wants us to take us into the holiest of holies. But you'll never get into the holiest of holies until you have a good Christology until you understand just who Christ is and what he has done for you, and uh, until you see him on the throne as throne of God and you see him as the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And then you understand that if it's God on that throne and it's the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world that's on that throne, then you understand that there's nothing else you can do to pay for your sins that Christ has done it all, that God has done it all. So what the author of this book has done, if, if you've been with us so far, he began by showing us just how much greater Jesus is than the prophets. Uh, 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 he created the prophets. He's the one who spoke through the prophets. He's the one we, we saw in, 
in verse 2, he's the one who made the worlds. Uh, he made the ages. He, we saw in verse 3 that he's the express image of the person of God Almighty, that he holds all things together. And by himself, we're told in verse number 3, that he purged us of our sins. And, and uh, in verse 4, he, he changes gears here, and he talks about how much greater he is than the angels. And how, why is he greater than the angels? Because he created the angels. The angels worship him. He's the only begotten son of God. More uh, uh, monogenes. He, he's the only one who has the genes of God. Angels don't have the genes of God. Only Jesus has the genes of God. And the angels worship him. And now as we come to, to the next verse where we left off in in uh, we left we finished with verse number seven as we come to verse number eight he's going to be quoting there from psalm chapter 45 so pick up with me in verse number eight and, and watch this watch what happens here if you've ever read psalm 45 you know right away it's a messianic psalm and the author of hebrew here quotes from that psalm and listen to what he says but to the son who's the son who's the son Jesus Christ, He, who's He? The Father, Jehovah God. But to the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, O Theos. Now, Theos is the Greek word for God. Elohim in the Hebrew, if you're in Psalm 45. He says, But your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So God the Father is speaking to the Son, and you know what He tells Him? Your throne is forever and ever. That, isn't that mysterious? I mean, doesn't that kind of amaze you that he would make that statement, that God the Father would say to the Son, your throne, O God, he calls the Son God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Now, how can God the Father call the Son Theos? How can he call him God? How can he say, your throne is forever and ever? You're the one who sits on the throne of God. I mean, did the Father abdicate the throne? Did the Father give up his deity? Well, let me tell you something. There can only be one God. There can only be one God. By, by its very definition, God means supreme or ultimate reality. If, if there can only be one supreme and one ultimate reality... So there can only be one God. So if Jesus is God, the Father is not God. Unless, unless they're the same. Unless they're the same person, the same being. And isn't that exactly what we were told over in uh, verse number 3? Look at, look at verse number 3. Go back to verse number 3. Jesus, who being the brightness of his, the Father's glory and the express image of his person. You see that? Jesus is the express image of the Father. In Colossians 2.9, it tells us that in Christ, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So in Christ is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Christ is God. He's the, him and the, I and the Father are the same, he said. That's, and so the Shema says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, Jehovah your God, is one God. And, and whenever we try to make three gods, and, we, and, and people skew the Trinity, 
and they have a bad Christology and you start making three gods, then you make Jesus some kind of lesser God, hey, you, you, you really got a messed up theology at that point. Because, because there can only be one God. The Shema says that. By definition, there can only be one God. And that God is Jesus Christ who sits on the throne of God forever and forever. And what is he holding there? On the throne, what is he holding? He tells us there, what, he, what is he holding? He's holding a scepter of righteousness. A scepter of righteousness from which he, which, from which he rules the world, his creation. But, now, you know what? In times like we're in today, it's real easy to forget that Jesus is on his throne. It looks like the devil's on, his, on the throne of God. The devil's the one who's ruling things, but he's not. He's a puppet in the Lord's hands. And if you were to see the Lord right now, and, and, and I think some of this is uh, symbolism, but symbolically, he holds the scepter of righteousness. Now, a king, when he held that scepter, that, that king could point that scepter at you, and you could be dead. He could point it without saying a word. He could say, take them away with that scepter, and they would take you away, and you would be dead. When you came to speak to the king, if, if he didn't lift his scepter and give you permission to speak, and you speak, then he would shape, take the scepter and point you away, and they would take you out and kill you. By waving that scepter, that king could move armies off to war. Well, Jesus holds a scepter, and he holds a scepter of righteousness. Why is it a scepter of righteousness? Because he lived a perfectly righteous life so that he could make us perfectly righteous. And now he rules on his throne in perfect righteousness. And one day he's going to rule in Jerusalem in perfect righteousness. In Revelation, the angels cry out, Referring to Jesus, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And they also cry out in chapter 16, verse 7, they say to Jesus, you're Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments, amen. Everything Jesus does is true. Everything he does is righteous. Then we go to verse number 9. And this, this we know. If you know the Lord at all, you know this. You have loved righteousness. You, you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. And then watch what he says. Therefore, Theos, your Theos has anointed you. Again, it's, it's Jesus. Therefore, Jesus, God the Father, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Now, we know that Jesus loves righteousness, don't we? I mean, if you know anything about Jesus, you know he loves righteousness. Read the law. Who gave us the law? Jesus gave us the law. Who gave us the Ten Commandments? Jesus gave us the Ten Commandments. Listen to the Sermon on the Mount and you'll hear his heart. It's a heart of righteousness. He's all about righteousness. Righteousness is at the, is at the core of his being. Righteousness is who he is. And righteousness, listen to me very carefully, righteousness is determined by him. Righteousness is not determined by a society. I don't care what a society wants to think. The righteousness is in this word and it's not determined by us. It's determined by him. And every single one of us has been created in the image of God. And therefore, right, we know what's right or wrong. 
We know it's part of our being. Now, you can, you can suppress it and you can sear your conscience, but deep down inside, you know what's right or wrong because you've been created in the very image of God. And so when you rebel against righteousness, you're not just rebelling against God, you're rebelling against your own self. And Jesus hates, listen to what he says, he loves righteousness and he hates lawlessness. He hates it. He absolutely hates it. And he's very serious about how he feels about it. What happened to Adam and Eve when they sinned in the garden? He killed them spiritually. That's how serious he was about hating lawlessness. One sin. They ate of that fruit. And he killed them in the garden. He killed them spiritually. And they died a physical death later on. And they never would have if they hadn't sinned. But he hates lawlessness. I mean, he hates lawlessness so much that, that he cursed the creation after they sinned. He cursed the creation for a day or two, right? Oh, no. For 6,000 years it's been cursed. And it's going to be cursed until there's a new heaven and a new earth. Until he comes back to rule and reign on a new heaven and a new earth. You know what? He hates lawlessness so much that that's why he created hell. He created hell because he hates lawlessness. What's, he, what's hell? What is hell? Hell is the eternal abode of the lawless. If you live lawlessly, you're going to get to spend forever in hell. Out of his sight, he doesn't want you in his sight because he hates lawlessness. Do you know why he died on a cross because he hated my lawlessness. And he loved righteousness. He hated my lawlessness so much that he died for my lawlessness. So that he could give me his righteousness. So that he could love me. That's the only way he can love me. That's the only way he can love you. That's why the Bible says, Jacob, I have loved, and Esau, I have hated. Don't say this. Don't get this idea that God loves everybody. God loves so loved the world. He loves his creation. But Jacob, I have loved, and Esau, I have hated. Why? Because Jacob was under grace. Jacob received the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And if you're not under that righteousness, then you're at enmity with God. The Bible can't be any clearer than that. You are an enemy of God. But he died for us so we could live with him forever in righteousness. Man, there's not going to be anybody in heaven. There's going to be no sin in heaven. There's going to be no sin on the new heaven and new earth. None of it. It's gone because he hates it. And he loves righteousness that he's going to make you so. He's already positionally made you perfectly righteous. But when you're in that glorified body, you won't, you'll never sin again. You'll never have an evil thought again. Because he loves righteousness. Now listen to what he says now. He says, Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. I mean, God the Son, uh, God the Father, he's saying God the Son, to God the Son, God the Father has anointed you with all his fullness. As King of kings and Lord of lords, more than anybody else, you've been anointed with the Spirit of the Father, the Holy Spirit, the oil of gladness. John the Baptist said this about Jesus in chapter number 3 of, of John. He said, 
The Father loves the Son, and He has given all things into His hand. He gives Him the Spirit without measure. He gives Jesus the Spirit of the Father, the Holy Spirit, without measure. Infinite. He had all the Spirit He has. And the Spirit is an infinite being, so He has all the Spirit. I mean, if I go home and fill up my tea glass, I can go just to the top, and then I stop. But the Father keeps pouring His Spirit in forever into Jesus. All the Spirit, all the Father, all the Holy Spirit are in Jesus Christ. You know what? I like that term. The oil of gladness. The oil of gladness. You know what happens to us as we go through this life? Our souls become bitter and hard and and cynical and nasty and it's hard to be glad and if you're living in the flesh you're not going to be glad and the worse this world gets the the harder it will be to find any happiness or any joy but the spirit is the all of gladness if you've ever been filled with the holy spirit you know exactly what i'm talking about because when you're filled with the holy spirit man you have peace that passes understanding you have joy in your heart Paul in the book of Colossians was praying for the, uh, the Colossae believers and, and uh, he prayed that they would have all, uh, be able to have all the might of the, access to the power of God so that they could suffer long in joy, in joy. And the only way you're going to have joy in this life is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the oil of gladness. Then in the next verse, verse number 10, he quotes from Psalm 102, another messianic psalm. And look who he calls Jesus now. This is the Father speaking. You, when we see Lord in caps, who is, who is that? Jehovah. The Father says, you, Jehovah, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. Oh, who, who created the earth? Who laid the foundation of the world? earth? Who created the stars in heaven? Who created this world? Jesus did. Look at verse number 2. He says, by these, by the, he has in these last days spoken to us by his son. He is appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the worlds. I mean, Jesus is the one who laid the foundations of the world. When did he do that? In the beginning. When was the beginning? Well, it depends on what you believe. I believe it was about 6,000 years ago, the beginning of time. That's when God created time, when he created the heavens and the earth. Uh, some people believe that was millions of years ago. But wh whatever it was, I believe it was 6,000 years ago, and I'll stand by that. But, but whatever it was, wherever the beginning was, Jesus Christ was there. In the beginning, he was there. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth. Man, that's an amazing thought. To think about the fact that before time, Jesus Christ existed before time as the creator of the worlds. But then when time came, he came to earth in time in 0 AD or 0 BC, however you want to look at it. But in eternity, there is no time. So Jesus in eternity has always existed. See, that's exactly what the prophet Micah says in chapter 5. He says, out of you, O Bethlehem, of his Ephraim, he says, will come a ruler in Israel. 
who will rule the world, whose goings forth are from everlasting. And that's the exact point he makes in the next verse, in verses 11 and 12. Look at what he says. He says, hey, you made the heavens and the, they're the work of your hands. You made the earth. They will perish. You made them in eternity and they will, they're part of time and they will perish. And they will grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up and they will be changed. But you are the same and your years will not fail. You get that? I mean, everything, everything we see right here is going to perish. Your body's going to perish. Everything in the, on this earth is going to perish. But the Lord will remain. He's going to roll all of this stuff up like a cloak. He's going to fold it all up, and then things will be changed, but the Lord will remain the same. Now, why is he going to do that? Why is he going to do that? Well, what happened when Adam and Eve sinned? We talked about that a while ago. The Lord cursed this earth, didn't he? And the curse of this earth has scarred this earth. And you add to the curse, you add wars, and you add the judgment of God, and you add pollution and all the things that we're doing to our environment, and this is not a perfect place to live anymore. We've messed it up because of sin. Is God going to live in an imperfect place? No, not for eternity. And so we know that all of this is going to be changed. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3, he says, One day the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the, and the elements will melt uh, with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. When is that going to happen? It's going to happen sometime before Revelation 21, when there's a new heaven and a new earth. And when Jesus rules on that new heaven and new earth, and, and uh, uh, we know it's going to happen sometime after the millennium and uh, after that last battle between Satan and rebellious mankind that we see at the end of the millennium. But he's the same, and his years will not fail. I love what Job says in Job chapter 19. I know that my Redeemer lives. And in the end, he will stand. When all the dust settles, hey, the great I am will be standing there, and he will be standing there with his people. And we'll go into eternity with him. And then in verse number 13, he says, But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool? Now he's back to this subject of, of the angels and comparing Jesus Christ to the angels. And, and the Lord has never said to any angel, not to Michael, not to Gabriel, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. You know, one of the reasons the Jews worshipped angels was because of their proximity to God, because of their proximity to the supernatural. I think that's why a lot of us have infatuation with angels, because they are supernatural beings. They're almost God-like. But they're in close proximity to God. They're in close proximity to the throne of God. They sit around the throne worshiping God. But, but Jesus is not close. He is on the throne. And again, going back to verse number 8, it says in verse number 8, Your throne, O God, speaking of Jesus, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. But he says, sit at my right hand. 
I mean, what is, what is the father saying there? He's just saying, look, I'm going to move over and you sit down next to me on my right hand. Is that what he's saying? No, the right hand is symbolic of the power of God. In other words, you sit on the throne and you exercise the power of the father throughout eternity. Your throne, oh God, is forever and forever. You know, it was from that throne. I mean, Jesus sits on the throne, and all the Godhead, the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him bodily, and it's from that throne that he sends forth his spirit. Now, all of this is, man, all of this is just almost beyond understanding. We have to rely on revelation. I mean, more than anything else, we have to believe what he's saying right here. It, it, it's, it sounds strange that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are, are three, but yet they're one. That sounds strange. So how do I reconcile that? Well, I like what Luther says. Luther says, the substance of this phrase, speaking of what we just read, the whole, this is, is this, the whole Godhead is in Christ, and to him as, as to God all honor is due. Yet he does not derive his Godhead from himself, but from the Father who begot him. He came forth from the Father. Jesus is the Father. I and the Father are one, Jesus said. And so he's begotten of the Father. So the Father is no less. We're not lifting Jesus above the Father. Well, if you don't understand these things, you know what Luther says, if these things are beyond reason, then reason must surrender itself to the words in Scripture, and we must believe. It is beyond reason that the Father would abdicate or seem to abdicate his throne to Jesus Christ. But Jesus is the Father. And if you can't understand that, then, and that's very difficult to understand, then you, you must believe it. Now, where are the angels? Do they, are they at the right hand of the Father? No. They sit at the throne, but not on the throne. Now, what does Jesus tell, I mean, what does the Father tell Jesus to do? What, one word, what does he tell him to do? What's Jesus supposed to, what's Jesus doing right now? You, you know what he's doing because we're told what he's supposed to do. Well, he prays, he's pray ever, he, he, he works in our lives. There's a lot of things, but the Father gives him one command. What's that, what's that command? Do you see it? What is it? First word. Sit. Sit. This is what you're to do, Jesus. You're to sit. Why sit? I mean, why not pace backwards and forwards and, and worry about what in the world is going on down there on earth? Sit. He says, sit. That's sit. Uh, he doesn't tell him to get busy. He tells him to sit. To sit and rest in the fact that the plan that was laid before the foundation of the world is about to take place. It's going to happen. All that's going to happen is going to be orchestrated by God. The rest, that's all that has to happen. God has to orchestrate history so that the enemies of Christ are made his footstool. But wait a minute. Man, it doesn't seem like God's doing very good at this right now. It seems like the enemies are in control. It seems like the enemies have taken over this world. It seems like the enemies are all gathering together to come against Christ. Hello? 
Isn't that his plan? That he's going to bring them all together for what reason? To destroy them. To make them the footstool of Jesus Christ. That's speaking of their destruction. Stomped on. That's what he's talking about. Man, you better believe all of this evil that's going on in the world. You think, well, God's just kind of laughing up there. and he's, He doesn't, he doesn't, uh, uh, he does. He actually does sit on his throne and laugh at men throwing up their fist at him. He sits because it's all part of his plan. The devil and his demons and the good angels and the church are all, and the evil world are all working out his plan, and it's all heading toward Armageddon. It's all heading toward the apocalypse, and it's all heading toward his return, and he's sitting there waiting for God to finish orchestrating these plans, and then he is going to return from glory. Hallelujah. You know, he's not pacing back and forth. He's not, he's not running around frantically worrying, man, is George going to make it? I mean, I wonder if he's going to make it or not. You know what he says? He says to me what he said, Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, I think it is. We were chosen in him. He chose us in Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world. He knew that I would be his child before the foundation of the world. He's not worried a bit about me. He's not worried a bit about me being glorified. I mean, I can look at myself and I'm pretty worried. I don't see how in the world he can glorify me as bad as I am. I mean, we're all bad to the core, but we're all good to the core if we've received Jesus Christ. And one day that bad is going to be, we're going to be rid of that bad and there's going to be nothing but the good left. And he's not worried about me one bit. He's not worried about you one bit if you're his child. You might be worried about yourself, but he's not worried about you one bit. And then, hey, the angels don't sit at the right hand. What do the angels do then? If, if they don't sit at the right hand of the throne and they're not gods, what are they? Well, he tells us in the last verse here, verse number 13. We'll finish up here. He says, but to which of the angels has he ever said? And I'm sorry. Well, let me read that. Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies, your footstool. He's never said that to the angels because that's not what the angels do. Here's what the angels do. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who will inherit salvation? That's the purpose of angels. They are ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who will inherit salvation. Now, what's really interesting here, there's two Greek words for minister. One is, and, and I, I think translated minister is okay. One word is lit, the word from which we get our English word liturgy. And that's, a, that's what are the Greek words for worship. So they are, who, do, who are that when they're functioning as liturgical angels, who are they ministering to? They're ministering to God. See, these liturgical angels are worshiping God. That's one of their functions. That's, that's their main function. When an angel is in heaven, he is worshiping God. I mean, you, I mean John gave us a, a little vision of heaven, and what did, it, what did we see there? We saw the angels standing before the throne, crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Just and true are your, your, your works. Righteous, you're righteous in all the things you do. They cry that out. 24-7, they're crying that out all the time until God says, man, Matt's messing up. He needs some help. Get, get down there and help Matt. No, maybe not just you, Matt. Some, some of us too. And then they go and they're 
here's the next word, they're diaconesses. They're deacons. They're serving spirits. Now, I've never met an angel, uh, a deacon who was an angel, but all angels are deacons. I mean, uh, they're all, they're all uh, deacons. They're all serving spirits. That's what, they're, that's what they're made to do. They're made to serve his will. And how do they serve his will? They serve his will by serving you and I. If you're a born-again believer, if you're not a born-again believer, you've got angels too. You've you got all sorts of angels hanging around you. The wrong kind. If you're a born-again believer, those are hanging around you too, but for different reasons. I'm, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm as serious about this as I can be. If you are outside of Christ, you have demonic angels. You might have a few of them inside of you. You might be possessed if you're outside of Christ. If you're in Christ, you've got angels protecting you from those demonic angels. You've got angels there that are serving you. And that's why Christ sits on his throne. He sits on his throne and, and, and he sends out angels. We don't see those angels. Maybe sometimes we do because they can't. We saw when we first started this discussion, we saw that they can take on a bodily form. We don't normally see them, I don't think, but we, we, we bite. But they're there. They're here right now. They're, right, they're in this room right now. I have no doubt. If our spiritual eyes were open, we would see heavenly angels and we would see demonic angels. And they're all around us. And so, yes, Jesus is so much greater. He's infinitely greater than the angels. So, what happened to Maria's shrine of the Jesus, the tortilla. What happened to that shrine? Well, I'll tell you what, it got taken in by the law of sec the, the second law of thermodynamics. When God cursed the earth, he brought in the second, the law, uh, the second law of thermodynamics, which means everything is decaying. Everything is breaking down. Do you, you don't want to test that theory? Take a top and spin it and watch it spin perfectly for a while, and then watch it begin to wobble, and then watch it crash. That's the way God has set up everything in this world. You, you, you can't find anything that's not decaying. Our whole universe is decaying. It's going from order to disorder. That's why you can't believe in evolution. You don't go from disorder to order. There's nothing that does that. Look at your own body. Now, I might have an exception, but some of you, they're decaying. They're getting older. And the second law of thermodynamics took care of old, the shrine of Jesus, the tortilla. I mean, it grew old and dry and brittle. And one day, Maria's granddaughter decided to take the tortilla to show and tell at school, and she dropped it, and it broke, and it broke in a way that Jesus' face was in three pieces, and they couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. And the remains of Jesus the tortilla now sit in a kitchen drawer in Maria's kitchen. That's the fate 
of anything that we substitute for Jesus Christ. He's the only one who was there at the beginning. He is the only one who remains the same and his years never fail. He never grows old. Thermodynamics, the second law of thermodynamics doesn't touch him. Angels come and go, prophets come and go. Images come and go, idols come and go. But Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And I don't know about you, but I don't want a God on a tortilla that ends up in a kitchen drawer. I want the God who is on the throne of God, the creator of the heavens and earth, the one who the angels worship, crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come, the one who died for me. He's my God. If he's not your God, I advise you to seek him out and find him. He's seeking you out right now if you're, if you're listening. And give your life to Christ and, and uh, you'll never look back. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for who you are in Jesus Christ. Lord, you're not some image in a tortilla. You're not an angel. You're so much, Lord, you're infinitely greater than Moses and the prophets. You're infinitely greater than Satan and his demons. Lord, you are the truly the Holy One, the God on the throne who sits there forever and ever. Lord, we just thank you for who you are and and what you mean to us, that you would empty yourself of all that glory and come down to this earth in time as a baby in Bethlehem and grow up to die on a cross for us. Lord, how grateful we should be and how we need to be thankful to you forever and ever, for you truly are our God. We thank you for who you are, Jesus. We thank you in your name. Amen.